371, Chapter 6. Book Talk begins at 11 minutes and 20 seconds. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 371, Cirrus. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy. And Subbable, the place for show notes, shows, and stylin' swag. Visit subbable.com slash craftlet for more information. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. I'm much better. Thank you so much for your emails and your phone messages and all of your happy get well soon wishes. It was very nice. But as you might imagine, being sick around the holidays... It's not fun. It's not what you want to do. And all of this craziness between losing our modem and not being able to use the internet to do anything for weeks and then holidays and then crazy and then illness, it's a lot of surus. This is a Yiddish word and it's a Yiddish, you know, there are certain Yiddish words that just, you just need them. There are moments when I don't know if you ever saw the movie Norma Ray. Kvetch, kvetch, kvetch. Sometimes you just have to complain or kvetch. Sometimes your life is full of surus. It's just the troubles, the problems, the things that are, you know, little gnats bugging you, flying around your face. So it's the surus. And I hope it's going to be over and no more surus for a while. That would be great. And you? Did you have a wonderful New Year's and holiday season this last year? Were you shocked, as I was, that all of a sudden it was 2015? How did this happen? I don't know. Because 2015 means that my older son is about to turn 15. And that's just not possible. I'm reeling at the speed with which life has started to go. But be that as it may, we have a book to get to. And I have announcements to share with you. One is correcting a mistake of mine from a few podcasts back, and the other is getting you the information that people have been sending in. I knew you would know the answer to my question in last episode. But first, corrections. I do not know what scales were in front of my eyes when I did, I think it was episode 368. I played a phone call from listener Corinne I announced her name as Chris from Alabama. (laughs) No, no. She was Corinne from Georgia. So do not ask me how I conflated either of those two things, but (laughs) embarrassingly and appallingly, I did. So huge apologies, Corinne. And uh, (laughs) she left me a very funny voicemail. And I learned a lot. And I will be double-checking names and locations from now on. But that also means for you, if you do call in on our phone line, which is area code 206-350-1642. 
If you do call in, please make sure that you make sure that I know how to pronounce your name. And even better than that would be to spell your first name because sometimes you say your name on Ravelry, but I can't figure out how to spell it. And then I can't hunt you down to say thank you. So leave me as much information as you can. And I can, I can remove that information from your message if you would like me to. You just have to let me know. If you don't want everybody else to know how to spell your name or what your Ravelry name is, just give me a heads up. It would be so helpful to have your name spelled. Are you that kind of person where you need to see names spelled out before you can remember them? I don't know what it is about me. I can hear lots of stuff and remember lots of stuff, but names, unless I see them written down, I am really going to be bad at name tags. I love name tags because I can remember people's names that way. That's really tacky though, isn't it? You don't want to have people walking around with a name tag for the rest of their life. That's just, that's not nice. Oh well, there it is. Now, if you're on the Facebook group, you already saw the answer to my question from last week, which is, Lady Burbanks, what? We got a ton of email and voice messages from so many people giving giving me exactly the same answer because I was looking for a place. It wasn't a place. It was a guy. But one listener left a voicemail that didn't just answer the Lady Burbank question, but it, in a very grand way, actually speaks to a lot of what's going on in today's chapter. So I'm going to play this for you. It's rather long. It's from Rochelle, but just keep in mind all of the things that Rochelle talked about. Some of it is crafty. Some of it is familial. Pay attention to that. And some of it is Burbanky. Hi, Heather. This is Rochelle, and I am calling from mid-Missouri, and I'm happy to announce that I recently celebrated my one-year anniversary of finding your podcast, and I want to thank you for helping me to have such a fun year. Um, I've been pretty good about staying current with whatever you're reading at the moment, but I've also been going back in your archives, and thanks to you, I've listened to some old favorites, um, but also some books that I never would have picked up on my own, and I really love that. Even though I love to sew, I usually listen to the podcast while I'm working in the kitchen or when I'm driving. We have three biological kids that I homeschool in addition to two foster kids that we added to our family in 2014, the youngest being seven months old now. So um, I've been listening to the crafty part of your podcast with some wistfulness, hoping that maybe someday I will be able to sew again, have the time to do that. Um, but your most recent conversations about quilting and English paper piecing uh, have actually made me feel physical pain <laughs> over the loss of my sewing. So I'm happy to say that I have picked up my paper piecing quilt again, and I'm squeezing in some stitches here and there when I can. So thank you for that inspiration. Um and just, I just feel like doing that, even that little bit, um, makes me feel like a happier and more peaceful mom. So I appreciate that. Also, I thought you might like to know that I listened to 
the latest podcast, and I think I might have an answer to your question about the Lady Burbank. Um, it makes sense to me that this is a reference to Luther Burbank, who was an American scientist who specialized in breeding plants. He lived during the late 1800s, early 1900s, and evidently we have him to thank for the Shasta Daisy and the Russet Burbank Potato, among other things. So somehow when your dad read that line, what do you suppose these Lady Burbanks had done with their cats, I just had a gut feeling that Burbank had to be a man, so I looked it up and found Luther. Okay, so that's all. Thank you again, Heather, for all that you do. Interesting. And that does make sense with our ladies and their agriculture. Now we have the answer to the question, what the heck was that about? And I'm feeling mighty stupid because I should have asked my father. I'm guessing that he knows who Luther Burbank was. And more importantly, it's totally embarrassing because last weekend I recorded audio with him where we talked about Herland. And I went back and listened to the audio. I'm going to clean it up a little bit. But I think I'm going to make just an extra episode of the two of us talking for two reasons. One is he has some interesting things to say about Herland, just from a guy perspective, but also from a scientist's perspective, because he is a geographer and has worked with many, many scientists over his life. And also the second reason is because I think all of a sudden you'll go, oh, well, that explains Heather a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) you'll hear what it was kind of like to live at my house and, uh, and sit around the dinner table because that's, that's kind of how our conversation goes. So I'll have that audio. uh, I might have it for you next week. So that is coming up. And now we have chapter six. Last week's chapter ended with Jeff, uh, the, the way that Gilman phrased Jeff's final statement in that chapter was as though it were Jeff making mischief. And the first couple hundred times I looked at that, I kind of went, what, what, what? And it's that there are, at the time that this was being, was supposed to have taken place, that this was being written in 1915, there were about 20 million women living in the United States from, from what we will be told shortly. Of that 20 million, Jeff just said that only about and that's the you know quotation marks, about 7 million women were poor enough that they had to work outside the home. This, he said, after the men had made this big deal about how cherished women were and how loved women were and how they were kept at home because that way they wouldn't have to go out and do heavy lifting. They would just, <laughs> she says just with quotation marks around that, uh, just have to manage the, the kids in the home. Now, one of the things that I've started doing, because my conversation with my father made me start thinking about other things, but this chapter also made me start thinking, I need to do some more research. And this is hard, hard-ish research to do. So if any of you have written papers on this subject and would like to share your information or would like to talk with me on Skype so that we can just play our audio, I would be thrilled because it's difficult to come by scholarly information or verifiable information for a lot of women's history because just nobody thought we were all that important to write about most of the time, which is why those ethical wills that I had talked about uh, a few times in the past 
are are so revealing and so important to have. These were ethical wills. It was something that a lot of Jewish women, especially in the ghettos in Eastern Europe, would do uh, when they knew that they were on the path out onto the next world. They would write these ethical wills for their children, trying to communicate to their progeny the wisdom they had gained during their lifetime, things that they had learned that they thought would make their kids' lives easier and better. And as you might imagine, those things were quite revealing of what daily life was like. This is information that we don't generally get elsewhere, uh, unless you read Elizabeth Gaskell. But what I'm trying to tease out from history right now is what were the things that women really, truly, honestly were prevented from doing, aside from voting? We know, we know that uh, England got the vote before America did. Uh, America got the vote in, uh, women got the vote in 1920. If you remember your history about the Seneca Falls Convention and the women's movement in the late 1800s, for a while there, the women's suffrage movement was working with the abolition movement in trying to uh, pre- present a unified front that any kind of discrimination against uh, black men and women or women just in general. Any discrimination was bad. And for a while, that really worked well. But I think Frederick Douglass probably saw the writing on the wall and realized that they would have an easier time getting a foot in the door, getting the vote for former slaves who were male. African-American males would have an easier time getting the vote than women of any color would. And I, I think he was probably right, looking at how long it took for women to get the vote in in this country. Now, all of this kind of research was bubbling around in my head, and I was reading web pages and finding books and talking to people. And then there was this thing with Kaylee Kuko, who's the uh, the girl, the blonde on Big Bang Theory. And evidently she she was interviewed in Red Book, and she made some statement where she said, you know, I, I really, I don't think of myself as a feminist. And she qualified it saying at one point in the larger discussion, I I don't think these things were followed hard on by each other. She also said, I don't feel like I have ever been prevented from doing anything. I don't feel like I have been discriminated against, basically. And therefore, the feminist moniker didn't apply to her. And then she went on to say, I like going home. I like cooking dinner for my husband. I like that kind of traditional role. I work all day. It's nice to come back to this this home that we have made for ourselves. And she got jumped on from both sides. And I thought, I I have the sneaking suspicion that the silent majority was (laughs) less polarized and sadly silent. Because either you had and this is all on Twitter. Either you had the people saying, "Oh, you feminazis, you know, you don't understand uh, blah blah blah, you're the you're the whole problem." Or you had the a harder core feminists coming back and saying, "You are taking women back decades. Why would you say something stupid like this? Don't you understand the sacrifices that women who came before you had to make in order for you to not be discriminated against? Don't don't you get it?" And it was very interesting to me because when I taught high school in New York City, I saw exactly the same argument, but about race. 
So I would have an African American, you know, just an example. I had an African American girl in class who just refused to do any work. She very clearly stated that she had no interest in getting an education. She was going to have a job when she got up because her parents had a, had a business and she didn't need this and she could go work and make a nice living like her parents did and uh, we were just wasting her time. Other kids, both boys and girls, would jump on her for saying this, saying, don't you understand what our ancestors had to go through to get an education of this quality? It was a college prep curriculum. These kids were going to college. Or watching a kid say, I'm not going to vote. And other kids jumping on that kid saying, don't you understand what our ancestors had to go through? You see the theme happening here. It's really interesting to watch it from the outside. It's also heartbreaking to watch it from the outside because it's one more place where our ability to have a useful dialogue doesn't seem to exist on the internet and certainly not in 140 characters. But one of the things that has consistently made me so happy to host this podcast and so, uh, I don't even know the word, relieved, calmed, given me hope for the future is watching Craftlit listeners in person and also online having conversations with each other about things that might get screamed about outside of our little community of fabulous people. But within our community, we seem to be awfully good at being able to gently, understanding that other people may not share our opinions, but gently share our opinions about things that might be quite controversial out in the world. And I think some of that might have to do with the fact that we all have had the luxury of making some really difficult choices. And I know that over the almost nine years now that I've been doing the podcast, I've shared from time to time the difficult choices that I've been confronted with, whether it's having to take a part-time job or staying home with kids or having to homeschool a child. These are choices that I had the luxury of making. And those were not choices that my mother had. And certainly not choices that my grandmother had. Uh, although I do know that my great-grandmother, before she got married, she taught Latin at a junior college in Riverside, California. And I, I only found that out 10 years ago, maybe. I didn't know that. And, and that's why she is part of the reason why I really am trying to go back and find out. Okay, 1915, aside from the vote, realistically, what could women not do? Were we not allowed to own property? Were we not allowed to have a bank account, open a bank account on our own? I don't know. I'm trying to find this out. And I know it's a part of my own personal issues that I always think, well, if people just have more information, then they'll stop screaming <laughs> at each other. Because it is, there are days where I really enjoy, enjoy being in the kitchen and cooking dinner for my family. And then there are days where I just really don't want to be bothered. And there are days when I really don't mind doing housework. Those are few and far between, I admit. And there are days where I, I would rather put hot pokers in my eyes than have to pick up a broom. 
So, you know, my initial reaction to Kaylee Kuko was disappointment. And, oh, great, here's another person who never had to live through seeing any of this stuff and doesn't know how lucky she is. But then as I thought about it more, I thought, well, no, I mean, depending on what mood somebody caught me in, I could probably have said something very similar. And then in thinking about all of this, I remembered the movie Nine to Five. And and I forgot that there was a scene that included smoking a substance that is medicinally legal in some states, but not so much everywhere else. That scene totally took me by surprise. That was so one of those moments where you're like, wow, 1979 and 1980 are really nothing like 2014, 2015. But aside from that one scene, we showed the movie to our boys. Our boys are about to turn 11 and 14 and a half. And they kept looking at me, turning around. They're sitting on the floor, turning around and looking at me. And I would just kind of shrug and say, well, that's not legal anymore. But yeah, that was legal. And they were horrified. It's one of the reasons why I, I say all the time, teach to the joke. If you understand the jokes, you'll understand the text. You'll understand the larger problem. And some of the jokes are in her land. And some of the jokes were in 95. And if you aren't familiar with this movie, it was Jane Fonda, Dabney Coleman is the bad guy, and he's awful, he's appalling. Lily Tomlin, who is brilliant, she is just so good. And Dolly Parton. It was the first movie Dolly Parton ever made, and she is beautiful in it. And if you think Dolly Parton is anything less than a a stunningly brilliant businesswoman, you need to go look at the history of that woman. She is extraordinary. Anyway, you're going to hear a phrase that Jeff utters where he says, reproduction is in inverse proportion to individuation. This is complicated. And I actually don't know why he ends it with individuation. I would have thought he would end it with personal economy or poverty or income. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. So in case you've never seen inverse proportion spelled out for you before, it's the kind of thing that you hear thrown about all the time, but I'd never actually gone and researched it. It's a mathematical term. And if you think for a moment about an X and Y axis, you know, the two lines that make the uh, plus sign, and you think of that all gridded out so you can plot positive one, comma, positive one, and that's up one square over one square. And when you're talking about proportionality, and in this case, inverse proportionality, what you're really saying is that the rate at which one of your variables increases is identical to the rate at which the other variable decreases. So as reproduction goes up, what I would have said would have been income or family's earning potential goes down down because that seemed to be what Jeff was getting at. However, it's interesting that he uses individuation because that's a big concept and it's it's grown since 1950. Well, it's grown since Jung. And it could be that what he's talking about, which doesn't get picked up sadly by any of the Herlandians, is that as reproduction goes up, your ability to differentiate between your children and therefore raise them as complete, distinct, 
unique individuals, giving them the time and attention that children might need in order to become fully who their potential would allow them to become, that that potential goes down. And I think there are probably a bunch of different interpretations of that, which I welcome you calling in to share, 206-350-1642, to call in with your interpretation of what Jeff is getting at. Because I think it's a, I think it's an important point that he's making, but I think it's a multi-layered point. And I'm, again, I'm really sorry that she didn't let one of the Herland women pick that up and question it itself. They go on to question other things. The other thing to listen for is Van starts qualifying an awful lot in this chapter where he'll say the women do this and then parenthetically say, and oh my goodness, wasn't it impressive that they were able to do this? And at first I was thinking, you know, Charlotte, that's like so clumsy, awkward, obvious that this is a woman writing this book and here you are putting these words into the guy's mouth to make women look good. But the more I was thinking about it and the more I was going back over the chapter, the more I started to think, you know what, maybe the things that she's punching, the things that she's kind of pushing through and and having Van do the pushing, maybe those are the things that she herself had been criticized for or, or had gotten nasty, snarky comments about. Like making inferences. I mean, we've we've all read things or seen texts or seen people say horrible things like, wow, for a woman, you really do math well. Which is, you know, <sighs> just makes you crazy. I have a sneaking suspicion that that's where these particular barbed comments, barbed positively, you know, pro-girl there, that's where they're coming from, is this is her opportunity to say, see, women are completely capable of this, biologically capable of this. There's nothing in our genetic DNA structure that says we can't do these things. However, our breeding program in the modern Western world has certainly made it difficult for us to demonstrate those things, whether it's because men prevent the women from getting there or women are not given the opportunities to grow those parts of their mind, their personhoodness. <laughs> Boy, she's really making a good case for how smart women are, isn't she? <laughs> anyway, listen for that stuff and see what you think. I will be happy to hear what you have to say. And there's one last word that I that I want to give you a definition for because I did not take systematic biology. I didn't take any biology that really dug into the genus, the species, the, all that stuff and break everything down into its representative parts in the world of fauna. The word that gets brought up is hymenoptera, which is spelled how you think it is, H-Y-M-E-N-O-P. T-E-R-A. Hymenoptera is the name given to the largest order of insects. So this is when you group species, when you group animals, well, honestly, when you group anything together, you find the commonalities between them. Arachnids all have this many legs and insects all have this many legs and 
mammals give live birth. The, these kinds of qualifications, these qualities are the things that allow you to group them going into smaller and smaller and smaller groups until you get to just homo sapiens. When you hear Hymenoptera brought up, it will make sense because the some of the insects that are within that order are wasps, bees, and ants. So now that will no longer throw you. Anyway, so all of this starts to press in and become something that makes Herland more and more relevant as we continue through it. So let's listen to Chapter 6 of Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Chapter 6. Comparisons are odious. I had always been proud of my country, of course. Everyone is. Compared with the other lands and other races I knew, the United States of America had always seemed to me, speaking modestly, as good as the best of them. But just as a clear-eyed, intelligent, perfectly honest, and well-meaning child will frequently jar one's self-esteem by innocent questions, so did these women, without the slightest appearance of malice or satire, continually bring up points of discussion which we spent our best efforts in evading. Now that we were fairly proficient in their language, had read a lot about their history, and had given them the general outlines of ours, they were able to press their questions closer. So when Jeff admitted the number of women wage earners we had, they instantly asked for the total population for the proportion of adult women, and found that there were but 20 million or so at the outside. Then, at least a third of your women are, what is it you call them, wage earners? And they are all poor? What is poor exactly? Ours is the best country in the world as to poverty, Terry told them. We do not have the wretched paupers and beggars of the older countries, I assure you. Why, European visitors tell us we don't know what poverty is. Neither do we, answered Zava. Won't you tell us? Terry put it up to me, saying I was the sociologist, and I explained that the laws of nature require a struggle for existence, and that in the struggle the fittest survive and the unfit perish. In our economic struggle, I continued, there was always plenty of opportunity for the fittest to reach the top which they did in great numbers, particularly in our country, that where there was severe economic pressure, the lowest classes, of course, felt it the worst, and that among the poorest of all the women were driven into the labor market by necessity. They listened closely with the usual note-taking. About one-third, then, belonged to the poorest class, observed Moedine gravely. And two-thirds are the ones who are, how was it you so beautifully put it, loved, honored, kept in the home to care for the children. This inferior one-third have no children, I suppose? Jeff, he was getting as bad as they were, solemnly replied that, on the contrary, the poorer they were, the more children they had. That, too, he explained, was a law of nature. Reproduction is in inverse proportion to individuation. These laws of nature, Sava gently asked, 
Are they all the laws you have? I should say not, protested Terry. We have systems of law that go back thousands and thousands of years, uh, just as you do, no doubt, he finished politely. Oh, no, Modine told him. We have no laws over a hundred years old, and most of them are under twenty. In a few weeks more, she continued, we are going to have the pleasure of showing you our little land and explaining everything you care to know about. We want you to see our people. And I assure you, Somel added, that our people want to see you. Terry brightened up immediately at this news and reconciled himself to the renewed demands upon our capacity as teachers. It was lucky that we knew so little, really, and had no books to refer to, else I fancy we might all be there yet, teaching those eager-minded women about the rest of the world. As to geography, they had the tradition of the great sea beyond the mountains, and they could see for themselves the endless thick forested plains below them. That was all. But from the few records of their ancient condition, not before the flood with them, but before that mighty quake which had cut them off so completely, they were aware that there were other peoples and other countries. In geology, they were quite ignorant. As to anthropology, they had those same remnants of information about other peoples and the knowledge of the savagery of the occupants of those dim forests below. Nevertheless, they had inferred, marvelously keen on inference and deduction their minds were, the existence and development of civilization in other places, much as we infer it on other planets. When our biplane came whirring over their heads in that first scouting flight of ours, they had instantly accepted it as proof of the high development of somewhere else, and had prepared to receive us as cautiously and eagerly as we might prepare to welcome visitors who came by meteor from Mars. Of history, outside their own, they knew nothing, of course, save for their ancient traditions. Of astronomy, they had a fair working knowledge, that is, of very old science, and with it a surprising range and facility in mathematics. Physiology they were quite familiar with. Indeed, when it came to the simpler and more concrete sciences, wherein the subject matter was at hand, and they had but to exercise their minds upon it, the results were surprising. They had worked out a chemistry, a botany, a physics, with all the blends where a science touches an art or merges into an industry, to such fullness of knowledge as made us feel like school children. Also, we found this out as soon as we were free of the country, and by further study and question, that what one knew, all knew, to a very considerable extent. I talked later with little mountain girls from the fur-dark valleys away up at their highest part, and with sunburned plainswomen and agile foresters all over the country, as well as those in the towns, and everywhere there was the same high level of intelligence. Some knew far more than others about one thing. They were specialized, of course. But all of them knew more about everything, that is, about everything the country was acquainted with, than is the case with us. We boast a good deal of our high level of general intelligence and our compulsory public education, 
But in proportion to their opportunities, they were far better educated than our people. With what we told them, from what sketches and models we were able to prepare, they constructed a sort of working outline to fill in as they learned more. A big globe was made, and our uncertain maps, helped out by those in that precious yearbook thing I had, were tentatively indicated upon it. They sat in eager groups, masses of them, who came for the purpose, and listened while Jeff roughly ran over the geologic history of the earth and showed them their own land in relation to the others. Out of that same pocket reference book of mine came facts and figures which were seized upon and placed in right relation with unerring acumen. Even Terry grew interested in this work. If we can keep this up, they'll be having us lecture to all the girls' schools and colleges. How about that? He suggested to us. Don't know as I'd object to being an authority to such audiences. They did, in fact, urge us to give public lectures later, but not to the hearers or with the purpose we expected. What they were doing with us was like, like, well, say like Napoleon extracting military information from a few illiterate peasants. They knew just what to ask and just what used to make of it. They had mechanical appliances for disseminating information almost equal to ours at home. And by the time we were led forth to lecture, our audiences had thoroughly mastered a well-arranged digest of all we had previously given to our teachers, and were prepared with such notes and questions as might have intimidated a university professor. They were not audiences of girls, either. It was some time before we were allowed to meet the young women. Do you mind telling what you intend to do with us? Terry burst forth one day, facing the calm and friendly Moadine, with that funny, half-blustering air of his. At first, he used to storm and flourish quite a good deal, but nothing seemed to amuse them more. They would gather around and watch him, as if it was an exhibition, politely, but with evident interest. So he learned to check himself, and was almost reasonable in his bearing, but not quite. She announced smoothly and evenly, Not in the least. I thought it was quite plain. We are trying to learn of you all we can, and to teach you what you are willing to learn of our country. Is that all? he insisted. She smiled a quiet, enigmatic smile. That depends. Depends on what? Mainly on yourselves, she replied. Why do you keep us shut up so closely? Because we do not feel quite safe in allowing you at large, where there are so many young women. Terry was really pleased at that. He had thought as much inwardly, but he pushed the question. Why should you be afraid? We are gentlemen. She smiled that little smile again and asked, Are gentlemen always safe? You surely do not think that any of us, he said with a good deal of emphasis on the us, would hurt your young girls? Oh, no, she said quickly, in real surprise. The danger is quite the other way. They might hurt you. If, by any accident, you did harm any one of us, you would have had to face a million mothers. He looked so amazed and outraged that Jeff and I laughed outright, but she went on gently. I do not think you understand yet. 
you are but men, three men, in a country where the whole population are mothers, or going to be. Motherhood means to us something which I cannot yet discover in any of the countries of which you tell us. You have spoken, she turned to Jeff, of human brotherhood as a great idea among you, but even that, I judge, is far from a practical expression. Jeff nodded rather sadly. Very far, he said. Here we have human motherhood in full working use, she went on. Nothing else except the literal sisterhood of our origin and the far higher and deeper union of our social growth. The children in this country are the one center and focus of all our thoughts. Every step of our advance is always considered in its effect on them, on the race. You see, we are mothers, repeated as if in that she had said it all. I don't see how that fact, which is shared by all women, constitutes any risk to us, Terry persisted. You mean they would defend their children from attack? Of course. Any mothers would. But we are not savages, my dear lady. We are not going to hurt any mother's child. They looked at one another and shook their heads a little. But Zava turned to Jeff and urged him to make us see. Said he seemed to understand more fully than we did. And he tried. I can see it now, or at least much more of it, but it has taken me a long time and a good deal of honest effort. What they call motherhood was like this. They began with a really high degree of social development, something like that of ancient Egypt or, or Greece. Then they suffered the loss of everything masculine and supposed at first that all human power and safety had gone too. Then they developed this virgin birth capacity. Then, since the prosperity of their children depended on it, the fullest and subtlest coordination began to be practiced. I remember how long Terry balked at this evident unanimity of these women, the most conspicuous feature of their whole culture. It's impossible, he would insist. Women cannot cooperate. It's against their nature. When we urged the obvious facts, he would say, Fiddlesticks, or hang your facts, I tell you it can't be done. And we never succeeded in shutting him up till Jeff dragged in the hymenoptera. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and learn something, he said triumphantly. Don't they cooperate pretty well? You can't beat it. This place is just like an enormous anthill. You know that an anthill is nothing but a nursery. And what about bees? Don't they manage to cooperate and love one another? As that precious constable had it? Just show me a combination of male creatures, bird, bug, or beast, that works as well, will you? Or one of our masculine countries where people work together as well as they do here? I tell you, women are the natural cooperators, not men. Terry had to learn a good many things he did not want to. To go back to my little analysis of what happened, they developed all this close inter-service in the interests of their children, to do the best work, they had to specialize, of course. The children needed spinners and weavers, farmers and gardeners, carpenters and masons, as well as mothers. Then came the filling up of the place. When a population multiplies by five every 30 years, it soon reaches the limits of a country, especially a small one like this. 
They very soon eliminated all the grazing cattle. Sheep were the last to go, I believe. Also, they worked out a system of intensive agriculture, surpassing anything I ever heard of, with the very forests all reset with fruit or nut-bearing trees. Do what they would, however, there soon came a time when they were confronted with the problem of the pressure of population in an acute form. There was really crowding, and with it, unavoidably, a decline in standards. How did those women meet it? Not by a struggle for existence, which would result in an everlasting, writhing mass of underbred people trying to get ahead of one another. Some few on top temporarily, many constantly crushed out underneath, a hopeless substratum of paupers and degenerates, and no serenity or peace for anyone, no possibility for really noble qualities among the people at large. Neither did they start off on predatory excursions to get more land from somebody else or to get more food from somebody else to maintain their struggling mass. Not at all. They sat down in council together and thought it out. Very clear, strong thinkers they were. They said, With our best endeavors, this country will support about so many people. With the standard of peace, comfort, health, beauty, and progress we demand. Very well. That is all the people we will make. There you have it. You see, they were mothers, not in our sense of helpless, involuntary fecundity, forced to fill and overfill the land, every land, and then see their children suffer, sin, and die, fighting horribly with one another. But in the sense of conscious makers of people, mother love with them was not a brute passion, a mere instinct, a wholly personal feeling. It was a religion. It included that limitless feeling of sisterhood, that wide unity and service, which was so difficult for us to grasp. And it was national, racial, human. Oh, I don't know how to say it. We are used to seeing what we call a mother, completely wrapped up in her own pink bundle of fascinating babyhood and taking but the faintest theoretic interest in anybody else's bundle to say nothing of the common needs of all the bundles. But these women were working all together at the grandest of tasks. They were making people, and they made them well. There followed a period of negative eugenics, which must have been an appalling sacrifice. We were commonly willing to lay down our lives for our country, but they had to forego motherhood for their country, and it was precisely the hardest thing for them to do. When I got this far in my reading, I went to Somel for more light. We were as friendly by that time as I had ever been in my life with any woman. A mighty, comfortable soul she was, giving one of the nice, smooth, mother-feeling a man likes in a woman, and yet giving also the clear intelligence and dependableness I used to assume to be masculine qualities. We had talked volumes already. See here, said I. Here was this dreadful period when they got far too thick and decided to limit the population. We have a lot of talk about that among us, but your position is so different that I'd like to know a little more about it. 
I understand that you make motherhood the highest social service, a sacrament, really, that it is only undertaken once by the majority of the population, that those held unfit are not allowed even that, and that to be encouraged to bear more than one child is the very highest reward and honor in the power of the state. She interpolated here that the nearest approach to an aristocracy they had was to come of a line of overmothers, those who had been so honored. But what I do not understand, naturally, is how you prevent it. I gathered that each woman had five. You have no tyrannical husbands to hold and check, and you surely do not destroy the unborn. The look of ghastly horror she gave me, I shall never forget. She started from her chair, pale, her eyes blazing. Destroy the unborn, she said in a hard whisper. Do men do that in your country? Men, I began to answer rather hotly, and then saw the gulf between us. None of us wanted these women to think that our women, of whom we boasted so proudly, were in any way inferior to them. I am ashamed to say that I equivocated. I told her of certain criminal types of women, perverts or crazy, who had been known to commit infanticide. I told her, truly enough, that there was much in our land which was open to criticism, but that I hated to dwell on our defects until they understood us and our conditions better. And making a wide detour, I scrambled back to my question of how they limited the population. As for Samel, she seemed sorry, a little ashamed even, of her too clearly expressed amazement. As I look back now, knowing them better, I am more and more amazed as I appreciate the exquisite courtesy with which they received over and over again statements and admissions on our part, which must have revolted them to the soul. She explained to me with sweet seriousness that as I had supposed, at first each woman bore five children, and that in their eager desire to build up a nation, they had gone on in that way for a few centuries till they were confronted with the absolute need of a limit. This fact was equally plain to all. All were equally interested. They were now as anxious to check their wonderful power as they had been to develop it, and for some generations gave the matter their most earnest thought and study. We were living on rations before we worked it out, she said. But we did work it out. You see, before a child comes to one of us, there is a period of utter exaltation. The whole being is uplifted and filled with a concentrated desire for that child. We learn to look forward to that period with the greatest caution. Often our young women, those to whom motherhood had not yet come, would voluntarily defer it. When that deep inner demand for a child began to be felt, she would deliberately engage in the most active work, physical and mental, and even more important, would solace her longing by the direct care and service of the babies we already had. She paused, her wise, sweet face grew deeply, reverently tender. We soon came to see that mother love has more than one channel of expression. I think the reason our children are so 
so fully loved by all of us is that we never, any of us, have enough of our own. This seemed to me infinitely pathetic, and I said so. We have much that is bitter and hard in our life at home, I told her. But this seems to me piteous beyond words, a whole nation of starving mothers. She smiled her deep, contented smile and said, I quite misunderstood. We each go without a certain range of our personal joy, she said. But remember, we each have a million children to love and serve. Our children. It was beyond me to hear a lot of women talk about our children. But I suppose that is the way the ants and the bees would talk, do talk maybe. That was what they did, anyhow. When a woman chose to be a mother, she allowed the child longing to grow within her till it worked its natural miracle. When she did not choose, she put the whole thing out of her mind and fed her heart with the other babies. Let me see. With us, children, minors that is, constitute about three-fifths the population. With them, only about one-third or less. And precious. No sole heir to an empire's throne. No solitary millionaire baby. No only child of middle-aged parents could compare as an idol with these Herland children. But before I start on that subject, I must finish up that little analysis I was trying to make. They did effectually and permanently limit the population in numbers so that the country furnished plenty for the fullest, richest life for all of them. Plenty of everything, including room, air, solitude even. And then they set to work to improve that population in quality since they were restricted in quantity. This they had been at work on uninterruptedly for some 1,500 years. Do you wonder they were nice people? Physiology, hygiene, sanitation, physical culture, all that line of work had been perfected long since. Sickness was almost wholly unknown among them, so much so that a previously high development in what we call the science of medicine had become practically a lost art. They were a clean-bred, vigorous lot, having the best of care, the most perfect living conditions always. When it came to psychology, there was no one thing which left us so dumbfounded, so really odd as the everyday working knowledge and practice they had in this line. As we learned more and more of it, we learned to appreciate the exquisite mastery with which we ourselves Strangers of alien race, of unknown opposite sex, had been understood and provided for from the first. With this wide, deep, thorough knowledge, they had met and solved the problems of education in ways some of which I hope to make clear later. Those nation-loved children of theirs compared with the average in our country as the most perfectly cultivated, richly developed roses compare with tumbleweeds. Yet they did not seem cultivated at all. It had all become a natural condition. And this people, steadily developing in mental capacity, in willpower, in social devotion, had been playing with the arts and sciences, as far as they knew them, for a good many centuries now with inevitable success. 
Into this quiet, lovely land, among these wise, sweet, strong women, we, in our easy assumption of superiority, had suddenly arrived. And now, tamed and trained to agree they considered safe, we were at last brought out to see the country, to know the people. So that's a little more information than we had before about how Herland grew to be the Herland that we see today. And I mentioned last week that this is heading towards something that may be rather surprising, although it was certainly of the time in 1915. And that is the subject of eugenics. Eugenics, you may have heard in a very negative sense. That was because Hitler was into it. He thought it was a great idea to weed out undesirable characteristics from the population and leave behind genetic superiority and health. And by doing that, you would improve the human race. And like so many things, when you hear only the positives about it, you go, wow, yeah, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. And Van does even say, you know, it had to have been hell for these women back a thousand years ago to determine who was going to be allowed to have children and who wasn't. And and clearly one of the genetic traits they must have weeded out was fighting back <laughs> because, because everybody seems to agree. I talk about this a little bit more next week in the audio with my father, and we'll keep talking about it as we go on. But I got an email message from Sarah at the like 11th hour and 59 seconds. And what she has to say about the way Gilman talks about savages, I think is going to have repercussions into how we talk about Gilman's attention to eugenics. So here is the voicemail from Sarah. Hey, Heather, this is Sarah Blake, Scarlet's on Ravelry. Um, I am finally, after four and a half years of listening, almost caught up with you. Um, I just listened to the first two chapters of Herland, and you made a comment about reserving your anger when hearing the use of the term savages to describe people. And I feel no compunctions about getting angry, um, not at Charlotte Perkins Gilman and not even at her character Van, but at humans in general for having used such terminology and for still using such terminology to exoticize and dehumanize the other. Um, so I just wanted to call and say, it's okay. I got angry too. Uh, that's all. Thank you for the awesome podcast. And I will probably email you and comment again soon. Take care. I think Sarah's point is so well taken. And I, I guess I never thought about it exactly this way, but I think the reason that I wind up making comments like that, you know, like, well, you kind of have to let it go because this was of the time and you kind of can't hate them for being no better than the rest of the population is because those are the things that really bug me too, but they don't bug me so much that I feel like it's worth getting rid of the book 
It's like with Huck Finn, there's a lot to have trouble with, and there is a lot to be impressed by. But if you don't know that this is the way that people talked about people back then, then it's impossible to judge how far we've come. And I think Sarah just seemed so joyful to me, like really enjoying having a passionate response to a book. And that is just fantastic. It makes me so happy. And on a a similar note, we got another voicemail. Now, this one came in after I had posted the last episode in 2014. And so I didn't get a chance to play this for you before, but this goes back to the concept of pockets and why are pockets such a big deal in Peter Pan, but also mentioned by the men when they're talking about the clothes that people in her land wear. And so I'm going to play you this voicemail from listener Kaylee in Seattle. I was listening to the newest episode and you asked a question about the importance of pockets in Victorian time. Uh, I studied English literature in college, and I remember reading Hurley, and I remember coming across a really cool paper on pockets and gender studies, and I just spent about an hour searching for it. can't find it. But I remember that the upshot of it was that the pockets are considered a very private space and uh, something that basically only the wearer can get to, a place where you can keep money on your person or things that other people can't get to. And I remember reading that that was one of the really important piece of power to be able to carry your your money around so easily and safely uh, with you that's really protected by you. Uh, So I remember that, and I thought that was really interesting that men had pockets and women didn't, and that they specifically mentioned that uh, the women in her land have pockets. And then in looking for that piece, I found a different uh, paper that that is called Pockets of Resistance by Barbara Berman that goes into more detail about just how important those pockets and other clothing attributes in her land are. Uh, So thanks for the wonderful podcast, and thanks for letting me think about this book that I haven't read in about eight years. Very exciting. Bye. Uh Uh-huh. Vindication. I knew there was something going on with the bloody pockets. I am so happy you called in. And now it just all falls into place, right? (sighs) See, Craftlet listeners, you guys are the best. Well, I'm going to stop the book talk here because we have, uh, I have a couple other things that I wanted to alert you to. And there isn't a lot more we can talk about yet until we get to the next chapter or two. Next week will be the audio of my interview with my father, and then uh, and then we'll follow it with the next chapter. And, all right, so, like I said, two little announcements. One, I promised you a raffle for the month of January, and now it is up. This is a raffle for a copy, a paperback copy, of Hunter Hammerson's latest opus, Curls, Versatile, Wearable Wraps, to knit at any gauge. And I will be honest with you. During the last eight months when I really could not pick up knitting, I edited this book for Hunter. And this was the first book that made my hands itch to knit again. It is a fun, breezy, easygoing book of patterns, versatile, wearable wraps to knit at any gauge which I love, because then it's like, bingo, perfect stash knitting book. 
awesome. So that is the raffle book. You can see more about it at the show notes for episode 371 at craftlit.com. And the last thing I wanted to tell you is that our tour only has 12 seats left. Yes, it is filling up fast. So if you have any idea that you, A, want to come, and really, why wouldn't you, and B, might be able to come October 10th through the 17th of this year, 2015, then please, please, please follow the link in the show notes. You'll see a picture that represents the sheep we will see on the tour in the upper left-hand sidebar of the show notes. And that link will take you directly to the brochure, which has all the information on reserving your space, what to do, who to call, how to get a hold of Diane, and we'll get you signed up. Remember, there is a deposit to put down, but that deposit is fully refundable up until June. So get the seat reserved, and I can't wait to go with you. Craftlet people are so much fun to travel with. And I'll start doing little mini travel guides for the locations that we're going to go to so that if you're kind of on the fence, you'll get an idea of what what it really is going to be like, where we are going, and what you'll be able to see. And I hope to get the effervescent and marvelous Peter French on Skype with me all the way from London, England, to talk a little bit about what he does on these trips because he is he is really truly spectacular and this this may well be the last tour that he ever guides and so he may very well end his illustrious and joyous career with us which i'm really happy about too one of the odder things that this chapter brought to mind was an essay that barbara kingsolver wrote in 1992. And because I am old, I remember reading this when it was actually in the New York Times books section. If you've never heard of or read anything by Barbara Kingsolver, please go read The Bean Trees. Um, Actually, I went camping with Barbara Kingsolver when I was a kid because Uh, She and my parents all worked at the same office at the University of Arizona in her life before superstardom, (laughs) her her former life. And yes, she is awesome. So she wrote this essay back in 1992 when her daughter was young, and I found it online, and I'm going to read it to you now. And I think you will see why this particular essay resonated with me after this chapter. February 9th, 1992. Everybody's Somebody's Baby by Barbara Kingsolver. As I walk out the street entrance to my apartment, a kid in maroon high tops and a startling haircut approaches, saying, Hi, gorgeous. Three weeks ago, I would have assessed the degree of malice and made ready to run or tell him to bug off, depending. Today, instead, I smile. And so does my four-year-old daughter, because after dozens of similar encounters, I understand that he doesn't mean me, but her. This is not the United States. For several months now, I've been living in Spain. And while I have struggled with the customs office, jet lag, dinner at midnight, and the subjunctive tense, 
My only genuine culture shock has reverberated from this earthquake of a fact. People here like kids. They don't just say so, they do. Widows in black, button-down CEOs, purple sneaker teenagers, the butcher, the baker, all have stopped on various sidewalks to have little chats with my daughter. Yesterday, a taxi driver leaned out his window to shout, Hola, guapa! My daughter, who must have felt my condition flinch, looked up at me wide-eyed and explained patiently, I like it that people think I'm pretty. With a mother's keen myopia, I would tell you absolutely my daughter is beautiful enough to stop traffic. But in Santa Cruz de Tenerife, I have to confess, so is every other person under the height of one meter, not just those who agree to be seen and not heard. When my daughter gets cranky in a restaurant, and really, what do you expect at midnight? The waiters flirt and bring her little presents, and nearby diners look on with that sweet, wistful gleam of eye that before now I have only seen aimed at the dessert tray. Children are the meringues and eclairs of this culture. Americans, it seems to me now, sometimes regard children as a sort of toxic waste product. A necessary evil, maybe, but if it's not their own... They don't want to see it or hear it or, God help us, smell it. If you don't have children, you'll think I'm exaggerating. But if you've changed a diaper in the last decade, you know exactly the toxic waste glare I mean. It goes far beyond diapers. In the United States, I have been told in restaurants, we come here to get away from kids. This for no infraction on my daughter's part that I could discern other than being visible. On an airplane, I heard a man tell a beleaguered woman whose infant was bawling, as loudly as I would to clear my aching ears if I couldn't manage to chew gum, if you can't keep that thing quiet, you should keep it at home. Air travel, like natural disasters, throws strangers together in unnaturally intimate circumstances. Think how well you got to know the bald spot on the guy who reclined in front of you on some long flight. As a consequence, I think of airplanes as a splendid cultural magnifying glass. On my family's recent voyage from New York to Madrid, we weren't assigned seats together. I shamelessly begged my neighbor a 40-something New Yorker traveling alone, if she would take my husband's seat in another row so our air-weary and plainly miserable daughter could stretch out across our laps. My fellow traveler snapped, No, I have to have the window seat just like you had to have that baby. Her remark left me stunned, and, as always happens when someone is remarkably rude to me, momentarily guilty. Yes, she's right. Conceiving this child was a rash, lunatic moment of selfishness, and now I had better be prepared to pay the price. In the United States, where people like to think that anyone can grow up to be president, we parents are left very much on our own when it comes to the little presidents in training. Our social programs for children are the hands-down worst in the industrialized world. But apparently this is just what we want. 
In an Arizona newspaper, I remember seeing a letter from a reader incensed by the possibility of a school budget override. I don't have kids, he declared. So why should I have to pay to educate other people's offspring? The budget increase was voted down. The school district progressed from deficient to dismal. And one is inclined to ask that smug non-father just whose offspring he expects to doctor the maladies of his old age. Our nation has a proud history of lone heroes and solo flights, so perhaps it is no surprise that we think of child-rearing as an individual job, not a collective responsibility. I hold that view myself, apparently, for here in my new home, I'm surprised when my daughter crash-lands in the playground and a sanguine Spanish stranger picks her up and dusts her off. When a shrieking bundle lands at my feet, I instantly look around for the next of kin. But I'm coming to see this detachment as perverse when applied to children, and I'm wondering how it ever caught on in the first place. In the natural world, it's understandable that the robin will roll out the eggs. An interloping cowbird has laid in her nest and watched them splat on the ground. But we humans are supposed to distinguish ourselves by our broad-mindedness. My grandfather's family took in and raised a neighbor's orphan children without a thought. In an era of shortage, this was commonplace. One generation later, though, that kind of semi-permeable household had vanished, at least among the white middle class. Even in cases of formal adoption, the identity of an adopted child's birth mother was guarded like plutonium, as if the coming together of two different mothers, matter and antimatter, could explode the family universe. I know of an exceptional couple who recently adopted a baby, and, along with the baby, have more or less taken in the baby's 16-year-old mother and various of her friends and relations. I expect that baby will grow up blessed. My second afternoon in Spain, standing on a crowded bus, as we ricocheted around a corner and my daughter reached starfish-like for stability, a man in a black beret stood up and gently helped her into his seat. In his weightless bearing, I caught sight of the decades-old child, treasured by the manifold mothers of his neighborhood, growing up the way leaven dough rises surely to the kindness of bread. I thought then of that ungenerous woman on the plane, and as always happens two days after someone has been remarkably rude to me, I knew what I should have said to her. Be careful what you give children, or don't, for sooner or later, you will always get it back. If you like Craftlet, you can subscribe and review Craftlet at iTunes or at Stitcher Radio. You can subscribe and sign up for cool perks at subbable.com. And you can get even more audiobooks with benefits by becoming a premium member, streaming via our app for iOS, Android, or Windows devices, or via download. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.